what a great story we have to tell. It's really a privilege to be here today to be able to worship with you. Um, I, I'm not Pastor Adam. Uh, and uh, we, we planned quite a while ago that, uh, uh, that his family was going to be at Bible camp and, uh, and that I would speak. Well, as it turned out, his family all caught COVID, and so they're home, I think. Uh, I've been trying to reach them the last couple of days and have not been able to, so I, I, I hope and pray that they're, that they're doing well. Um, my name is Jim Rice. Um, I am not a speaker like this. This is not what I did for my living. I was a, I was a music teacher for 40 years, and uh, so I stood behind one of, one of those things. Only, only when I did, I, it was usually I was faced this way, so people got the better view of my, of me, and so I apologize that you have to look at this side. But, uh, uh, and and I've never given a sermon before, although I'm sure my students probably would disagree with that. Um, but this is different and more important. And it's my privilege to be able to, to do that today. Um, I chose as the, as the title for, for the message today, Everyday Life of a Disciple. Now, last week we heard the beginning of today's story. Pastor Adam read from uh, Luke verse, uh, chapter 9, where Jesus had just finished making sure that his followers understood what being a disciple was all about. He introduced them to the concept of cost. And as a reminder, I'll, I'll read those verses for you. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. For some, the cost may be greater and of a different type than others, but all will experience the cost of discipleship. There should be a cost. The cost means it's worth something. In today's scripture reading, we see Jesus sending a portion of his committed followers on ahead to basically do what John the Baptist did, prepare the way of the Lord. In our text, we're going to get a taste of discipleship from Christ's standpoint. As I, was, as I read, look for a few things from the text. Notice what Jesus tells his disciples to pray, what to do, and what to rejoice about. Let's stand together and hear God's word. Reading from Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 11, and verses 16 through 20. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, 
but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Wherever you enter, whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. We jump to verse 16. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, what joy this brings us that you would call us, everyday people, as your own, that we would be the children of the living God. We thank you for teaching us we thank you for the truths that we find in your word. And as we look into it today, and we learn how to pray, we learn from you what your task is for us. We learn how to give the message, and we learn how to rejoice as we serve you. Would you bless us? Would you speak to us? Would you give us the clarity of your will Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So in other words, Jesus here is describing the everyday life of a disciple, giving them four fundamental components essential to their daily walk as his disciples. The first component we see is in verse 2. We read of a disciple's prayer. In verse 3, we read of a disciple's task. In verse 9, we read of a disciple's message. And in verse 20, we read of a disciple's attitude. Let's take a look at these four components. Number one, a disciple's prayer. In verse 2, we read, And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. 
Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. It's really interesting to see first see the divine logic involved here. Jesus tells the 72 newly appointed evangelists to go on ahead, heal the sick, preach the gospel, and pray very hard that the Lord would send more workers. Here's the flow. The fields are ripe with a bumper crop. The time to harvest is now or never. So we see that there is a time limitation. Crops are only good so long and then they rot and fall off the vine. There is a time factor in their work. Next in this verse, there's the issue of work. The word translated laborer is the word that agriculture comes from. This is referring to the hard work of a farmer. A farmer sweats and labors for the harvest. He plows and sows and cultivates and harvests. Only after these very hard tasks are accomplished can he enjoy the harvest. Only after, uh, in the gospel labor, the labor of a disciple, there is another type of hard work involved. Pray earnestly. Labor in prayer. Work hard at praying. We need to ask ourselves, do we work hard in prayer? Do we labor in prayer? Notice what the disciple is to pray. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. It could be that we often pray for the wrong things. Please understand, it's not wrong to pray for the lost around us. It's not wrong to pray that God would save our family and friends who are not converted. Here in this passage, Jesus doesn't say, pray for the harvest. He doesn't say, pray for the lost. He very clearly says, pray to the Lord of the harvest for additional workers. Pray to Christ that he would raise up disciples who would be bold in their witness. Pray for the laborers who are already doing the work of evangelizing. Also notice that this prayer is most effectively prayed by someone who is already a disciple and is involved in the gospel work and sees how many people are still ripe for the harvest who may not hear the gospel because there is a shortage of workers. Picture a farmer with a 1950s model tractor who is about to plow one of those monstrous 5,000-acre wheat farms in eastern Washington. Now, I looked it up, and this tractor, 1950, was designed to plow about 10 hours, uh, 10 acres, in a very long day. 10 acres, 4,990 to go. He gets up in the morning, and starts the old tractor and begins plowing. He labors until dark and realizes he's only scratched the surface. It's only that farmer who truly understands the great need for more help. His discouragement points to the fact that more help is needed. His aching muscles and back point to the fact that more help is needed. 
His tractor that is overheated points there. The guy sitting at home in front of the TV has no real knowledge of the help that's needed. Only those who are laborers in God's field can really understand the great need of the disciple. Here's the other issue. Jesus tells those laborers to pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. I'm to pray to Jesus, who knows a million times more than I do about this eternal harvest, and tell him that he needs more workers. That's like me telling someone with a PhD in agriculture that a field needs more of a certain kind of chemical. Here I am, one who sets out a few tomato plants, telling the expert what to do. Yet Jesus does this. Why? Why would the Lord of, harv of the harvest command me, a lowly day worker, to ask him for more workers? It's in this verse and verses like it that we see the clear and true tension between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. The harvest metaphor here suggests an urgency re regarding evangelism that many Christians no longer feel. For a farmer, harvest time is the most urgent season of the year. Modern equivalents include tax season for the accountant, Christmas season for the merchant, final exams for students and teachers, deployment for soldiers, deadlines for journalists. Most of us can survive failure on an ordinary day, but failure in these harvest seasons is likely to be disastrous. Starvation, bankruptcy, or the end of a career. Today, many Christians have trouble believing that failure to accept Christ can have similarly disastrous consequences. William Carey, an English Baptist missionary in the early 1800s and known as the father of modern missions, approached his church a few centuries ago seeking their help in his missionary calling. Their response was, son, if God wants the heathen saved, he'll do it himself. They were wrong. God does the saving. He also does the sending. God saves his children as we are faithful in telling and going. God will save those who don't know him, and he saves them as we go and tell and pray. We see there is God's part and our part. God has chosen the means by which people will be saved. The means are through prayer and going. So here's lesson number one. So as disciples of Jesus, he teaches us to make time every day to pray for God to send out laborers into the harvest field. Component number two, a disciple's task. In verse three, three we read, go your way, 
Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. What we have here is a prelude to the Great Commission. Seventy-two is the number of nations in the ancient world. Actually, some Bibles say 70 and others say 72. Bible experts explain that in Genesis 10, written in Hebrew, 70 nations were listed. But when the Hebrew was translated to Greek, it was translated as 72. Either way, Jesus is calling for all the nations to hear and respond to the gospel. To do this, Jesus gathered, taught, and transformed these 72 everyday people just like you and me. Then he gave them the task of going and telling the story of Jesus. We are commanded as his followers to proclaim the same message as he did. We are to be the laborers. It's often the case that when we pray, God uses us to be the answer to that prayer. Here, the disciples are called to pray for workers, and then immediately Jesus tells them to go. As they are going, they continue to pray for additional workers. Jesus teaches us to keep praying and keep going. As we go, lambs among wolves were not helpless. Notice Jesus says, I am sending you. The Bible says in the book of Matthew, I am commissioning you to go. In John, he says, I am the shepherd who leads you. And in Joshua, God says, I will be with you wherever you go. It is as though lambs are among wolves, but Jesus reassures us and gives us confidence, saying that he, the great shepherd, leads us. This is why we must be praying all the more. Lesson number two. The everyday life of a disciple is a life of trusting God as we go and tell. We have to ask ourselves, are we praying for laborers? And are we going? Component number three. A disciple's message. In verse 9 we read, the heal the sick and heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. The healing of the sick is an act of compassion, but it also draws attention to the message that the kingdom of God has come near. This combination of compassion and proclamation, deed and word serves as a powerful witness yet today. The hungry person who is fed, the homeless person who is housed, the sick person who is healed, the injured person whose wounds are treated, these people will find themselves drawn to the person who has met their needs and to that person's faith. It is important when we serve to let those we serve know that we love them and serve them because of our love for Jesus, who first loved us. Otherwise, they will fail to make the connection between the help that they have received and the Christ who motivated us to give it. 
our larger purpose, the proclamation of the kingdom of God, will be lost. Luke gives us a one-sentence summary of the message the disciples were to preach as they went. It was the same message Jesus and John the Baptist spoke. The Bible says in Matthew 3, verses 2 and 3, where John references Isaiah chapter 40, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Basically, the prophet John is pleading with the people to change their course from a way that leads only to death to a way that leads to eternal life with God the Father. They must turn from sin and open their hearts <coughs> because the promised Messiah was finally coming among them and he would pave the way to heaven for those who elected to follow him. It was a message of the kingdom of God. In their case, the kingdom of God was very near because the king was near. Healing the sick was the manifestation of kingdom nearness. It was proof of what they preached. Their job was to preach the gospel and call the people to repent, getting them ready for the king to enter. These were the king's spokesmen. When they preached with Jesus' commission, they were representing him. So when they were either accepted or rejected, Jesus was either accepted or rejected. Lesson number three. It's the same for us today. We are commissioned by Christ to go and preach the gospel to those around us. We are to be bold and faithful as these disciples were. We're to speak to people about sin, repentance, and God's kingdom. We need to ask ourselves, am I praying for more workers? Am I going and telling? And am I speaking to people about sin and the Savior? Component number four, a disciple's attitude. In verse 20, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. We learn from this verse that disciples must guard against being puffed up. The disciples had just seen their first victory. It's like the Little League baseball team after their first win on their way to Dairy Queen shouting, we're number one, we're number one. Jesus had to very quickly intervene if their attitude was to stay positive. Paul talked about this need for humility as he writes in the books, book of Romans, chapter 12, verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. The tendency also is to begin to think that any success that is seen is to be attributed to some missionary strategy or evangelistic scheme and not to the all-knowing creator who saves. Jesus tells these young Christian disciples to not rejoice that the evil spirits are subject to them, 
but any rejoicing that is done should be a rejoicing in what God has done for them. We read, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Bottom line, the question is not our joy, but Christ's joy. The question is not so much, what do I do to be happy, as it is, how may I make Christ happy? The issue is not so much, where do I get my joy, as it is, how do I give Christ joy? It's essential to give yourself first to Christ's commands, then let him reassure you that you are his, safe and secure. And I believe that you will be, as the title of C.S. Lewis's book has it, surprised by joy. And that's good. But it's even better to bring joy to the heart of the Savior. If you want joy, then live for Jesus a life that is true, as the old hymn says, striving to please him in all that we do, yielding, allegiance, glad-hearted, and free. This is the pathway of blessing for each of us. If you want joy, just let it happen. If you want joy, don't work for joy, work for Christ. If you want joy, wonderful joy, real joy, let Jesus come into your heart. Lesson number four. So a disciple is praying for laborers, going and telling, speaking the good news, and is rejoicing that his name is written in heaven. In other words, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, you are registered in heaven as a citizen of God's kingdom. You have been chosen to salvation through Christ, pardoned, accepted, and saved. Remember those tomato plants that I talked about earlier? Well, so far it hasn't been a very good season for tomatoes. It's cold, cloudy, rainy. Those tomato plants are way behind where they usually are in June, now July. Much the same as the time we're experiencing here at Maple Park. But I know that I need to keep caring for them, fertilizing and watering, and God will take care of the rest. And I can taste the deliciousness of those juicy tomatoes right now. God has given each of us the task of going and telling. In the same way, God will take care of the rest. Ultimately, our joy isn't because of what we do. It's because of what Jesus has done in and through and for us. And we say, Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Let's pray together.
Lord God, we acknowledge that you are our God. And we are so thankful that we are your people. But we confess that too often we fail to live out that holy relationship in our daily lives. We miss opportunities to show true love to others. We allow fear to make us small in our faith. Shadows of doubt, and they, they just obscure the brightness of your presence. We follow the desires of our heart instead of seeking your presence. Lord, forgive us for what we have done and for what we have left undone. Remind us again of your presence near us and in us. Free us, Lord, from guilt and shame and self-doubt. Help us to see you in moment-by-moment possibilities to live with integrity, to act courageously as your people, and to speak the love of God in all of our words and all of our actions. Lord, we pray in your holy name. Amen.